Today on Octal FM, we take a look at a whole year's worth of games as we discuss why 2007 was one of our favourite years in gaming. Hello and welcome to another episode of Octal FM. I'm Sefran. And I'm Gelada. And today we're going to try a new episode format, another one. Uh, we're trying lots of different ones recently, aren't we? <laughs> uh, and this one, we're trying uh, years of gaming, where we look back at a particular year. So in today's case, as the episode title's already given away, we're talking about 2007. And we look at some games that were released from that, what was good about it and what was unique and what had kind of a long lasting effect on the industry. Yeah, it's sort of like just kind of looking at stuff from a historical point of view, but also from our own memories as well and sort of things that we remember about that particular year um, and sort of try and pick out some, you know, interesting things or, you know, we talk quite a lot on Octal FM about uh, significant things in video games, like in the genre, whether it's sort of like, um, you know, significant developments or about particular consoles and stuff like that. And so this is really kind of like a historical look at a particular year um, and what was kind of significant that was happening back then. Because I think it's, it's interesting because it sort of, it sets the scene for a lot of stuff that's happening now and sort of makes you look at stuff that's going on in video games now in a different way when you think about how things were 11 years ago or whatever. Mm. And that, that blows my mind, right? That this is one of my favorite years of gaming kind of from recent memory and it's 11 years ago like that's <laughs> mad it feels like it was just yesterday and the thing is is that the games don't feel like they've aged that much when you play some of these ones that we, we were talking about today like if you play a game from say like 15 16 years ago we're talking like kind of like end of kind of playstation 2 and nintendo 64 era i think there you know they, they look like those games but if you play a game from 2007 like especially some of the pc games you, you can't really tell. They're from just 2007, really. They still sort of hold up today. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're all gems. There's not. There's plenty of rubbish ones. We had to sift through the list of all the games released in 2007. <laughs> and then the, there were some corkers, to say the least. Um, but the amount of quality that was available that year really was a milestone in gaming history for me. So we wanted to discuss all games as well we didn't want to just put like a, our favorite nintendo games from this year as would be pretty on as would be brand with <laughs> yeah very FM. typical nintendo fm but we'll be both be honest and say that there's definitely more pc related things here because that was sort of my and i think your console of choice at the time as it were yeah i mean i think if you like thinking about it 2007 we both started university um i didn't have a tv and i didn't actually have consoles at at that time like i didn't have an xbox 360 or did a you Wii. take your gamecube with you was that probably the extent to what you had i don't think i did because i didn't have a tv i didn't right. take a tv with me to university so i only had my pc so i think that kind of really accentuated that platform for me personally and i think also that was you know it had only been sort of a year or two of actually having a really decent gaming pc and mm. you know i think we were we were all our friendship group was very core and and uh, in terms of pc gaming like that was like yeah. our thing it was very much where we spent a lot of our time that was when our first sort of uh lands became quite common for us mm -hmm. uh, playing lands 
this is also sort of the time when PC gaming sort of hit its stride, in my opinion, with like online support, with things like Steam becoming to hit, become really big. Mm, um, yeah, Steam had been around for a couple of years before this, but that was primarily as a platform for their own games like Counter-Strike and Half-Life. But now it was being used as almost like the platform that's being used as today, kind of very, very similar. And you also started to see the sort of, this kind of blending of the consoles and pcs i must admit it was kind of the era of bad ports like bad console ports to pc um some of the games that we're going to talk about you know that the pc versions definitely had their flaws but at the same time you started to see real effort to resolve that for example like microsoft had the kind of games for windows thing where they sort of like blended xbox 360 and pc and they would sort of release games on both and they had like a an xbox live style platform for pc as well you sort of started to see that and i think actually it's taken a good like eight to ten years for that to really kind of settle down this Mm. was really kind of the early stages and only now do i kind of feel like pc ports are they're not ports anymore because now this was kind of the time where companies were building game engines for specific um they were still building a lot of bespoke game engines and they would build them for a specific platform and then try and get them to work on another platform Mm -hmm. whereas nowadays we see platforms like unity which we've talked about before that are cross-platform from the word go and so actually you now you know because you also have mobile in the mix as well which you didn't have in 2007 well, this was also the era of the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, if you discount right. the Wii uh, in that kind of discussion, which was sort of the first consoles as well, which are more PCs than anything else. Like, they were very much PCs in a box, became kind of the norm, especially with the upgraded versions of them, and then with the PS4 and the Xbox One, which is basically what they are as well. Um, they stopped being as bespoke a console and started becoming more just accessible level PCs yeah. almost. It was mainly the 360, right? Because the PS3 had that weird processor and it was still kind of trying to do something different. But that was kind of like the last hurrah because it Mm. flopped compared to the 360. And I think that kind of made Sony realize, okay, actually we need to just kind of be normal because developers were getting to that point where they wanted cross-platform. They wanted to port everything across all consoles because, you know, PC gaming was really, like you say, getting, you know, really cemented. And, you know, so, and the 360 was just kind of helping that, really. No, absolutely. Despite the fact that that was also the year, the 2007-2008 were actually the years when Microsoft had to deal with all of those faulty 360s coming back like the huge amount of 360s being sent back as damaged but despite that they were still outselling the competition you know again if you discount the Wii because that was such a weird anomaly you know they they still made money hand over fist and they they definitely won that generation of the console wars as it were but I also feel this was almost the the end of the the traditional console wars in a sense like Nintendo would definitely drop the pretense of trying to compete at this point because they had the Wii out Microsoft were very much now established as an actual kind of game developer. Before that, they were like, they had the Xbox, but it only had a couple of games. And are they going to stick around or is this going to mm. just be like a, a blip and that's it? And then PlayStation was still sort of in that, well, rather Sony was still sort of in that mindset. Uh, but this is very much the end of it. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. But moving on from talking about the the consoles and sort of like the shift in the gaming landscape, but more to the games themselves, we've picked a huge list of games that I th- we feel were very important or influential or just outright good. 
that were released in 2007. And we're going to talk about a couple of them in more detail. And one of the first ones was one that we hold very dearly to our hearts. We've definitely talked about in the past on previous episodes of Octal FM. And that was the Orange Box, which is a combination of three games. That was Half-Life 2 Episode 2. Had Team Fortress Two as well, which was the reimagining of the of the old Team Fortress mod for right. Counter Strike, and then on top of that, you also got Portal as well, the the beloved short puzzle title, which mm. was sort of like a little experimental indie project, almost before indie projects on mainstream consoles were were really even possible. Mm. And all these things were very different in their own way. They all brought something quite new to the mix. The Orange Box was really a mismatch of valve experimenting right like they were already experimenting with steam you know in in the in the sort of game delivery space and orange box was really an experiment in episodic content which is something that we now kind of take for granted with things like downloadable content and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but this is really very early days of dlc and sort of paying a small amount for a game that that is high production value uh, because it's short, you know, that that was a new thing at the time. I mean, they also marketed it just like that as well, didn't they? Because the Orange Box was, at least here in the UK, was retailed at £25. Right. Which for three games of, of such high quality from such a good developer is, is yeah. you know, pretty, pretty weird at the time. Yeah, exactly. So like experimental pricing, experimenting with the sort of way that you deliver content. I mean, it, the cynic in me is like, it was just an excuse because they didn't want to make Half-Life 3. Um, <laughs> so they just kind of like made some little games to kind of tie people over. But Portal as well, Portal's story is very interesting and we we won't go into the sort of full detail, but there's a lot of where the, the story of sort of, you know, Valve employees seeing this kind of indie thing at like a careers fair that like, like a couple of students had built and they basically hired them and got them to make it as a proper game you know like that's now that kind of story is perhaps a little bit more normal and you know we have a lot of experimenting in the genre as a whole by big companies as well as small but this was really one of the first times and i think i sort of see orange box as kind of like a a rejection of traditional triple a video game releases Mm, i think that that has had a a really really lasting impact both on valve and the way that they release games and make games their entire you know the world of of half-life but also the industry as a whole in terms of like oh a game doesn't have to be a you know a triple a boxed game you know with a manual and a disc and a and all of that kind of stuff it's like you can release them in groups or with you know as little episodes or you can chunk your game up and get people to pay three times, but for different bits of it. You know, I think that's it's really interesting. And it was also the first title, I believe, that which you bought a physical copy of that required the use of Steam. You mm. couldn't play it without installing Steam on your PC and thus requiring an internet connection. Now, don't get me wrong, nowadays that's pretty standard for so many games now, but at the time that was, again, pretty new. And I remember yeah. that actually caused me some difficulties uh, personally, as at the time when it came out, I just started university and I had a fantastic internet connection at the university halls I was staying in, but they were like, I guess, firewalled or yes. some other sort of, yeah. you know, you know uh, network managing, which just out, flat out refused to allow Steam to work. It just wouldn't work. So I couldn't actually install the orange box, even though they were all, well, though Half-Life 2 Episode 2 and Portal were offline single player experiences. So yeah. I had to take my PC to another internet connection to get it installed to allow me to play these games. Valve were a little bit ahead 
with Steam at this point. They were caught sort of they were really pushing their luck um, because I don't think that at the time internet was quite there in terms of like availability for gamers. Mm. Um, you know, everyone typically did have the internet if you were a gamer, but it was certainly, you know, in our kind of like um, environment, I guess. But I think that having like a decent internet connection and that sort of, that was definitely pushing it. You know, now you really take things like Steam and, and Origin and, you know, every all big companies have their like, you know, delivery mechanism mm. and you sort of take it for granted. But back then being forced to install one of those was, was quite a big ask really. Mm. Like it wasn't uncommon at that point in time for a lot of houses, like a lot of just residences to just have a regular 56k dial-up connection still. Mm. Like don't get me wrong, broadband had become more widespread, but it certainly wasn't ubiquitous. No, definitely So not. again, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But we we, we digress. Uh, I yeah. feel we've, we've definitely gone a bit off the tangent a bit there. But it's sort of, what's interesting is kind of like this, having this sort of infrastructure around games and this kind of increased sophistication was also being reflected that year in some of the new um, intellectual property and some of the new sort of uh, experiments in video games as a whole uh, with something like Bioshock, right? 2007 was the, was the release of the very first Bioshock. Maybe it wasn't super obvious at the time, but, a, you know, a short while after and definitely looking back, Bioshock was really a, a sort of coming of age, if you like, of that's kind of like our video games art question mm. that had, you know, had really been banded around for a long time, but was something that was very kind of like out there as a thing to sort of consider. And, and you know, I don't think even we as gamers uh, at the time considered video games necessarily as art, but mm. I think something like Bioshock really not only made a lot of gamers question that, but also the mainstream media, right? Like it really got to that point where like Bioshock was something that a lot of people talked about as kind of like a serious thing in terms of storytelling mm. and like as a medium. I think one of the big reasons for that, because there had been games prior to that that had attempted to maybe just be a bit more serious, trying to tell an actual story rather than just being a game for kids to play. Mm. You had kind of games like uh, Shadow of the Colossus and Ico, you know, those, those yeah, games. True. But the thing is, is that the limitation of the hardware that they were on, I think, was still the thing holding them back because mm. they still looked a bit clunky and a bit like a game, a bit like a toy. Whereas mm. Bioshock had wonderful graphics and it was moody and it was dark and it was not realistic, but it was very stylized and you could tell what the artist was trying to get across with the the design of everything. There's more like capacity for depth, right? By mm. the time that you've got to that point in terms of like, like you say, like kind of art style, it's not that it was like super realistic and amazing and like it was good graphics, but like, you know, obviously graphics of video games are better now, but it was the fact that it was just over that threshold, I think, where, yeah, it no longer looked like a toy as much. And, and, and that's sort of coupled with that exploration of kind of storytelling, I think is what really kind of made Bioshock a, a pinnacle. Not only was it a new, you know, intellectual property in 2007, I guess it's kind of like a spiritual sequel, wasn't it? Just to, to um, Sister Shock, we were talking yeah. about this earlier. Yeah. But not only was, was that the case, you know, and Bioshock is still kind of around now. Also, you know, that kind of like storytelling. And we've talked about this, right? Bioshock was, was it, I, we talked about it in, um, was it the favorite stories in video yeah, games? Yeah, episodes that stuck, stories that stuck with us. 
um, you know, so it had a lot, certainly on me, it had a, it had a lasting um, impression. And we talked about how, you know, one of the people involved was sort of from, from theatre and stuff like that, you know, it's sort of seen this blending and the, the technology and, and uh, video games were sort of getting sophisticated and the technology was getting good enough that people who explored storytelling from a film point of view or from a theatre point of view could apply the same things to video games, mm. which you couldn't do on a SNES, right? No, <laughs> like you, definitely not. And it's not like we say that games hadn't attempted this prior to that. I mean, you could even just use something like System Shock and System Shock 2 as the examples because they're so similar. Bioshock Mm. and System Shock have so many similarities in terms of story and gameplay. But the biggest difference is is that you look at the blocky, textured graphics of System Shock (laughs) and it is hard to take it seriously. It's hard to, Mm. especially if you're not a gamer and you're not familiarised and sort of already steeped in that sort of culture, it's hard to appreciate it for what it was. Bioshock didn't require you to need that. And as a result of it, it was much easier to take seriously, quote unquote, by non-gamers, which is why it got so much attention in the media and really pushed forward the idea of like more of a games can be something more than just a toy and something to you know, to play as pastime, something you can experience. Bioshock and also Uncharted as well, which is sort of very similar in terms of in terms of what it was doing in terms, you know, from a storytelling point of view. I think there are lots of games now that really kind of lend themselves to that starting point of things of something like Bioshock, you know, back in 2007, you know, now when we talk about things like The Last of Us or, you know, the new God of War, that kind of style of storytelling, I think really it's just new Tomb Raider, new Horizon Zero Dawn, you know, all these games all have a very similar feel to it and they can definitely all trace their roots back here, I think. And that's not Mm. to say that the roots began here, but this is definitely a big turning point for games. No, Absolutely. And although Bioshock did push its boundaries on things like his storytelling, one thing it didn't really do was it didn't push its boundaries on the gameplay. It's no, kind of safe yeah. in that sense. Like it didn't didn't try and experiment too much in gameplay. It was kind of a, a standard first person shooter puzzler, almost very similar to like the original Half-Life, weirdly enough, that we talked about Half-Life earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one game that did push the boundaries of gameplay and really sort of invented almost a new subgenre within its genre was Call of Duty 4. Yeah. Now, when you think of Call of Duty now, like in 2018, you think of the absolute Goliath franchise that every single kind of gamer buys. And it's become this sort of like yearly franchise, which is purchased by mostly casual players now more so than anything else, I'd say. But back in 2007, the Call of Duty series, although was quite popular and mainstream, it certainly didn't have that level of, of infamy. No. It really, really wasn't that big a deal by comparison to what it is now. And Call of Duty 4 was pretty much what kicked that off, right? Because although it had a pretty killer story, it was really good, it was set in the modern mm. day, so it's a lot more relatable. Actually, yeah, like Call of Duty 4 is kind of known, right, for for its its single-player campaign and story. It was, was sort of, I don't think it's it. they've ever really properly topped it since then no i don't think so because after that point it got to the ridiculous levels of like the the really over the top tom clancy novels right of like right exactly. just retelling the cold war but from a modern point of view <laughs> um, whereas called gg4 it definitely had its more bombastic moments it, of course it still felt kind of real in a lot mm. of ways some of the yeah. scenes that they had you play out like you know the famous nuclear scene after the the, the warhead was detonated was was pretty powerful experiencing mm. sort of like uh the execution scene yourself 
yourself like yes. you 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 know and they tried to top it with things like modern warfare 2 with like the the no russian scene in the airport mm. but i feel they just did that for shock factor and it worked i mean the amount of advertising they got for that was insane but i feel like they were just doing that for the sake of trying to top themselves whereas call of duty 4 was felt kind of genuine like they were they were trying to do something there but that was kind of not where we were going with that that was that's almost like a byproduct of what they created which was possibly one of the best first person shooters ever and that's saying something because there've been some really good games don't get me wrong but this definitely defined the 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 current first person shooter genre in my opinion uh, outside of the older traditional first person shooters of things like Quake and Unreal Tournament which had very kind of fast paced arcade action mm. Or the more slow, methodical pace of something like maybe Counter-Strike or the old Rainbow Six games. Uh, you know, Was it SWAT, I think, was another one as well, where yeah. everything was very methodical and slow? It blended those two ideas and two ways of playing the game into one. So you had quite a fast-paced frag environment, almost kind of Halo-esque in a way, but with also having the kind of the modern military uh, aesthetic and the... It was more objective-based than just running around and blowing things up, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that nowadays, and maybe it's interesting, actually, I just, this is a little bit kind of tangential, but thinking about the current trend of Battle Royale as, Mm. if we think about first-person shooters, I know Battle Royale, a lot of it is third-person. If we think about that sort of style of game, look at the new Call of Duty coming out, which has yeah. a battle royale mode. Yeah. Call of Duty as a as a as a genre is now playing catch up, right? Like adding a battle royale to Call of Duty is is an admission that the like mass multiplayer genre, which is kind of like what I think of when I think of Call of Duty Four, I think of like everyone played the multiplayer of Call of Duty Four, like yeah, in the same definitely. way that. On a smaller scale, everyone played Counter-Strike or Quake. Yeah. Call of Duty 4 was like the breakthrough of multiplayer, like fast-paced sort of deathmatch style mm. um, or like objective-based style games. And now it's Battle Royale, right? Like yeah. it's Fortnite. And and Call of Duty is now playing catch-up to that. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Like we're talking, you know, 11 years ago, Call of Duty was the one that like invented a new sub genre and now we've seen this was like the battle royale of 2007 yeah no it definitely was because <laughs> so many games then proceeded to try and do a very similar style of call right. of duty 4 so many games became so much alike them well it was basically essential for every multiplayer game from then yeah. on to have like leveling up and perks yeah. and like kill you know, streaks yeah like kill streaks uh, or the kill and, cam as well like i've even got yeah, to mention that there you know, it's like that was a that was a first you know call of duty 4 introduced the kill cam it had so many new innovative ideas which they didn't really expand upon after that they just sort of like added to and tweaked and you know just kind of kept re-releasing the same thing for a very mm. long period of time and that's not to say there haven't been called good call of duty games of course for the most part they're all good but yeah. none of them have ever really stood out to me anywhere near as much as call of duty 4 did at the time and i spent ungodly amounts of time playing that game <laughs> no it's not even funny like i couldn't play it in my university hall so i had to go to an internet cafe to play it and i don't even want to admit how much time and money i spent doing that <laughs> that's how good it was uh, and i'm not even particularly a big first person shooter ever really was like i guess we played counter-strike back in the day and that was kind of it but yeah no i mean i didn't play a huge amount of cod 4 but i'd certainly played enough of it and it's kind of you can see the effects that it had, you know, so much mm. stuff that you now take for granted really 
in in the multiplayer genre really owes itself to to COD Four. And a lot of other games also owe their current modern day uh, sensibilities to another game that came out in 2007. Mm. And when I told you that this came out in 2007, you're like, oh my God, really? It's been going that long, but yet they've done so many <laughs> titles. Uh, and that's Assassin's Creed. Right. It's amazing to think that Assassin's Creed is 11 years old in the sense of like, wow, that was really quick. But also, wow, they've released that many games into only 11 years. <laughs> I mean, you look at the list of Assassin's Creed games, it's massive. There are so many main title games and spin-off games, etc. And nowadays, they're kind of... They're very much the modern AAA churn out a sequel every year to make the money game. No, well, in, in a way, Assassin's Creed is kind of the Call of Duty of the sort of action-adventure genre a little bit, you know, and Battlefield and something like that. You know, there's yeah. sort of like, um, you know there's going to be another one. It's a safe bet, yeah. You don't have to worry about whether you... If you want to play another one, you're like, well, another one will come out in 12 months' time. Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of Assassin's Creed... Assassin's Creed as a series is definitely a little bit of a mixed bag. There are some good games. Um, the first one is very good. The second one is good. Uh, the new one that's just out, Odyssey, is getting very good reviews right now at the time of recording. Mm. But thinking back to 2007 and thinking back to Assassin's Creed then, obviously it was a new IP, you know, and, we, and a lot of what we've talked about here is new IPs and there are some others as well, which we'll touch on. Again, there's like elements of games now that we take for granted or that we almost expect we're not necessarily first in Assassin's Creed, but but Assassin's Creed really cemented it. Yeah, Things very like much. The style of open world exploration in Assassin's Creed, you can see in so many other games now. Even Breath of the Wild oh, is yeah. basically Assassin's Creed, but with Link. Yeah. Because everything from, you know, climbing up a tower to mm. reveal the map, like that's literally Assassin's yeah, Creed. Yeah, no, definitely. Like the whole parkour system is, is yeah. very, very similar. So many games do that now. The idea of having kind of branching side quests that you can mm. go off and do and pick up whenever you want and that kind of fast travel between areas or you can kind of go between the areas with like a horse or whatever. Yeah. You know, a lot of these things were brought into the modern day with Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And it was kind of a lot of the stuff that Assassin's Creed had in it would be parts of a game that you would classify as a role playing game, mm. like uh, whether it's sort of leveling or equipment or inventory or you know, collectibles, like you say, side quests, um, fast travel, you know, all of that kind of stuff is like heavy RPG kind of elements that were in something that really was a lot more about kind of action adventure and combat and, you know, in a storyline that you would, mm. that you were being, that you could go through that was very compelling. And it really kind of blended that, you know, and, and I think that there, yeah, there are there are a lot of games that that owe themselves in the in the last eleven years to Assassin's Creed, and it's kind of crazy. Like for Ubisoft, like Assassin's Creed is so big and so popular. You know, it's that it's that it's one of those series that has ended up with you know a film and lots of books yeah. and you know all of that kind of stuff. Like that, all of the side stuff. I kind of see it as a as a modern day Tomb Raider. You know, Very where Tomb Raider so. was like the PlayStation One like mainstream media thing that had a film and you know books and all of that kind of stuff and was you know Tomb Raider is you know Lara Croft is kind of like Sonic and Mario right yeah and, and then Assassin's Creed although it doesn't have a single character I think as a like what would you call it as a brand yeah you know it's for Ubisoft it was it was a Tomb Raider essentially yeah it's definitely their kind of like what what is it I like a temple brand yeah, exactly yeah, the idea is, uh, that's what they base a lot of their stuff on it's what makes them a lot of money it's their safe bet 
And it's also the area where, that, weirdly enough, they can actually experiment because this yeah. doesn't necessarily go perfectly. They know it will still sell well enough that it will recoup its money anyway. I, I quite admire Ubisoft that they do that, that they are willing to experiment with Assassin's Creed as a brand. You know, the fact that it has some mixed bag games, I mm. think, is actually kind of good in a way compared to something like... You know, Call of Duty or um, or even a, even Mario as a series. Mario yeah, is actually a, a great example. Like Mario is pretty much always a relatively safe bet and Nintendo kind of play it very slow and safe. Mm. But Assassin's Creed, like Ubisoft are willing to go a little bit out there and see what sticks. I really kind of admire that. Then we did have a tough time kind of picking a lot of games that we couldn't <laughs> discuss too. And we haven't got enough time to go into all of them in as much depth as we have the ones we've just talked about now. And they didn't necessarily have as much of an impact on sort of like the games industry and the, you know, other games as a whole as these ones did. But they're still worth talking about because either they were really good games or we just personally love them. One of the games that came from this year, which I've talked about extensively in previous episodes, was World in Conflict. <laughs> uh, I love that game. Um, and it's a real shame that it just didn't seem to get the audience that it needed. Uh, it didn't seem to sort of like gel with people as much as I wish it had done. Uh, but then again, another 2007 game that I couldn't play in my university halls because my internet connection. <laughs> that was depressing. <laughs> I, there's, uh, what else? There's like, for, for me, like uh, Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. Was, yeah. This, that was from 2007. And I think Pokemon was already a massive Goliath of a series. And I don't think Diamond and Pearl was any particular crazily bigger than any of the mm. other games. But Diamond and Pearl really brought Pokemon up to modern day in that it was online and, yep. you know, it had a lot of quality of life things yeah, in the game. Definitely. It's like Nintendo admitted, okay, people take Pokemon games quite seriously and so we're actually going to help those people. And they've kind of only further done that since then. Um, and I feel like Diamond and Pearl was really the turning point there where they were like, okay, fine. Like we're kind of, it's it's almost like the games admitted that there was a world around them. Yes. Um, whereas the previous games were like, they were just their own little enclosed thing. Mm. And I think that that was partly because it was, you know, it could go online and stuff like that. I mean, before that as well, I think they basically accepted the fact that they've gone on record saying that gold and silver were going to be the last games because they thought after that that it was just going to lose interest people were like yeah. well, this is they've done this now let's do something else but they didn't expect it to be as wildly successful as it was so mm. i think they did ruby and sapphire as a this is a really even more polished version of what the other two games were in a way with a few new added features and then they went okay yeah diamond and pearl we need to do something to make this into an actual sticking franchise which kind of cemented some key features and uh quality of life like you say for mm. the rest of the series from there on i said yeah. that was the first modern pokemon game like in yeah. a way like Agreed. isn't that one where it was like easier at that point to then connect to get your pokemon from other generations to other generations yeah like it was i mean they always did it but that was definitely yeah like that's kind of what, i guess what i mean with about the sort of quality yeah. of life you know it's sort of omitting where it fits in but yeah so that's definitely one for me another game that came out in 2007 which is just criminal that we've not talked about it properly but they just didn't have enough of a lasting mm -hmm. impact which was mass effect yeah. you know it's it's an incredible series it spawned a legacy that's known and loved and hated but it and it's just a shame because it just doesn't seem to have done enough to change anything but it was just such a pinnacle of story-based games mm. it's got a story and characters that everybody loves pretty much um you know even if the some of the end turning plot twists weren't necessarily as well received one of the things that i think a lot of people forget about mass effect as well was that at first it was a xbox exclusive 
You know, oh, really? it was know it that. was designed to to sell Xboxes. You know, mm. uh, and then obviously over time that changed, and the different games were released on different consoles. Then I think later on it just became you can buy whatever console. But yeah, it was, at first it was designed to shift 360s. So and it did that in well very well. Like it was a really really popular game, and it it, it definitely sold very well. It spawned a very loved franchise. Another one that I sort of, in my mind, I kind of put together with with Mass Effect is The Witcher. Mm. I, I kind of see The Witcher as sort of like Dungeons and Dragons style RPGs turned into something else. Like mm. it's sort of like you take something like Baldur's Gate and then you make it into like a 3D game that's kind of like still got some like advanced role playing game mechanics, but has sort of layered over kind of like a badass storyline mm. on top, is a little bit more adventurous with the way that it tells a story. To me, it's almost how what Game of Thrones is to, say, Lord of the Rings. Right, exactly, exactly that. That's a, that's a much better analogy than mine. <laughs> but yeah, you're exactly right. Like, And again, that's another one that, you know, that's not necessarily had like a crazy impact on video gaming as a whole, but definitely um, is sort of like a big franchise now um, and, you know, and has spawned some really high quality games. So yeah, that's that's another one. Um, God, there's just so many. Like when you actually, we're not we're looking at a much larger list of games than the ones that we're talking about yeah. here. Like it was, there was just 2007 was a crazy year for yeah, it was video a crazy games. year for games. And then we looked and say the the year after that as well in 2008, and it just wasn't anything it's anywhere near as interesting. Like, that's not to say there weren't some good games. I think in 2008 you said there was like Borderlands was, was yep. came out, which yeah, was yeah. awesome. It, 2007 was definitely a, a milestone year for video games, and many outlets have called it like one of the best years in gaming. Yeah, uh, and I, I can, and I agree. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it in this episode, and I think we will talk about other years in games in future. And that's not to say that they aren't necessarily as amazing or as interesting because of what they've brought to the table. But 2007 was a personal favourite for me outside of the fact that it was known to be a very good year too. Mm. Um, like it had some amazing games in it that I loved that stuck with me ever since. So I, I imagine a lot of people who listen to this probably agree as well. They've probably played a lot of these games or have played games as a result of these games. Mm, that, I think, is definitely the most interesting. I mean, I don't mean to, to date or age ourselves, but you think if this was 11 years ago and we've got some maybe listeners that's kind of in their 16, they were five when these games came out. These are some maybe their first games they played. Yeah, you yeah, know? no, exactly. And also, I think it's just kind of... Some, so so many things that came out in 2007 are now staples of the video game landscape. Yeah. And I think that that, for me, that's what makes it a landmark year is just seeing all of these branches come off from 2007 in terms of whether it's new IPs like Assassin's Creed um, or whether it's just things that are now essential in a genre like what Call of Duty 4 did. Yeah. It was definitely a video games going mainstream year and also a video games experimenting with themselves year for sure. But what year would you like us to talk about next? Like Ooh. what what year in gaming do you think tops 2007? Ooh. Or maybe a year in gaming that was awful and we should talk about like that and say how on earth did we get through that disgusting gear of gaming <laughs> um, let us know what you would like us to discuss in future because i had a lot of fun doing this one reminiscing about those kind of games and it was it was interesting unpacking them as well from a more analytical point of view too rather mm. than just being nostalgia nostalgia driven uh, but yeah, let us know. Let us know about another year that we should talk about. You can send us an email. Actually, it fits in a tweet. So, you know, just uh, at Octal FM um, or send us an email, uh, show at octal.fm 
or come and grab us on Facebook. Maybe we could set up a Facebook poll. What was your yeah, favorite, that'd be cool. um, fa- favorite year in gaming? Yeah, just search Octal FM on Facebook for that. I haven't done this for a while, so uh, definitely, you know, if you're listening in a podcast app, whether that's um, Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or Overcast or anything like that, they all have cast in the name, um, yeah. then, you know, please do star or like this episode or the show. Uh, receiving reviews means a, means a great deal to us. Um, it, makes a, it does make a really big difference um, mm. and sort of getting some feedback. So, you know, if you're looking at your podcast app right now, I hope you've just switched your phone on and you're looking at it and your, yeah. your thumb right now is hovering even just a short piece of feedback is really useful like the little bit we do get does definitely inform how we we do things yeah uh, absolutely and we've definitely tried to take that into consideration with the recent few episodes too yeah, which i think 100%. will probably be noticeable if you look at the older ones so it is definitely going to be effective if you do that so if you feel like you've got some useful input or you just want to tell us we're doing a great or sucky job then do tell us <laughs> do i do i want to hear if we're doing a sucky job yeah i, I guess i i guess i do <laughs> all feedback is good feedback jow yeah, if you give us too much negative feedback, then this is the last you hear from Octal FM. <laughs> like, pack it in. Pack it in now. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I've been Gelada. And I've been Seferin. And catch us again for another episode of Octal FM. If you don't send us any bad feedback or a lot of <laughs> bad, bad feedback very soon. <laughs>was it episode two or episode one? Ooh. Maybe we should check this. One second. I feel like it was episode two, but I may be wrong. I feel like it was episode one. Let's have a look. Oh, no, you're right. Episode two. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. Was it Counter-Strike? No, it was... Was it Quake? No, Team Fortress was um, was like a source... Oh, wait. Oh, God. We're just showing up. Yeah, the the original Team Fortress. God, man, yeah. Suck. Team Fortress Classic. Where are we? It was a... Cause I f- oh, it was? Yeah, no. Team Fortress was a Quake mod. Yeah. And then it was ported to Gold Source as a way of promoting Half-Life. Yes. Classic, classic Octal FM. Uh, yeah. Like, dissect. Dissect and dissect until it's <laughs> like... Until you've just... They get all the fun out of it. No. Yes, that's, that's definitely what we do. 